0: Hi, I'm Jess B. Cannon. And I'm Jessica Kidwell. And this is We Should Talk About That. A weekly podcast where we get the uncomfortable conversations everyone should be having, whether they realize it or not, started. We believe through sharing stories and experiences,
1: we build community, which helps us all feel less isolated and alone. So let's
0: get started.
1: <laughs> Hi, Jess. Hi, Jess. How are you? <laughs> I mean,
0: I think you're doing better than I
1: am. Tell I mean, everybody what you just came from. Yeah, I was just, Jess was laughing at me because I was like shaking my head on camera to kind of clear out the cobwebs. I literally just rolled in the door from a 90-minute massage. Holy
0: shit, 90 minutes, not can, even just an hour. Oh,
1: I can't go back. She goes, once oh, you, I know.
0: Once you mm-hmm. have 90, you yep. never go back. It's true. It's you, true. Agreed. It feels
1: like a mall massage, anything less than a 90 at this point.
0: (laughs) So I want to ask you, because I had a 90-minute massage last week. Whenever I go out of town for, like, speaking or something, I try to, like, I try to do something like that for myself. And I had some gift cards for my birthday. So it was different than the other places that I've been to where I walked into a room and I was going, like, a big, huge room. And there were all these people lined up getting chair massages. There were, like, 25 of them in the dark. It was completely dark and all huh. these people getting chair massages. And then they made me walk through the break room to go to my massage room. And I looked over at my massage therapist and she had a Cheerio sitting on her shoulder, like a little Cheerio. And then I was left with the moral dilemma. Of, do I tell her? Do oh, I pick no. it off? Do I look oh, it no, off no, no, or no. do I wait and see if the Cheerio falls on me while she's massaging me? Like oh, a, just no. a little Cheerio. I'm going to say red flag, red flag, (laughs) red flag, red flag. No, no. And and I stayed. Was your massage better than that?
1: (laughs) My massage was much better than that. I have a standing every four week appointment with a massage therapist that I have absolutely fallen in love with Mm. because kind of like a hairdresser. I feel like a massage therapist, if you find one that gets your body and gets your mm-hmm. pain and like listens to you and takes you seriously that's like gold so mm-hmm. i i have a serious relationship with Raina, mm-hmm. and we have a i see her more often than i see most of my friends wow Raina, well done I awesome know. okay but thank you for asking and so i am in the best mindset oh to amazing. have a conversation with our guest today tell us who is joining us.
0: All right. Today, we are talking to Dana DelVal. She is on a mission to help others discover the spark they were born with through her extraordinary blog and newsletter, Professional Talks and the Discover Your Spark Experiences she leads. She'll help you not just identify and articulate your dreams, but develop a framework to get going on the pursuit of those dreams. Today, in the next few months and for the years ahead, she's at the intersection of remarkable and so, so ordinary, and she bets you are too. In February 2020, Dana and her husband, Dr. Andrew Mazmari, launched a nine-week, 27-part multimedia series about his fall into and climb out of alcoholism and their joint journey back to a joyful marriage. They hosted a twice-weekly live stream called Daily Dose of Dr. Mari and Dee from July 2020 until December 15, 2022, where they openly shared their experiences and have guests on to share theirs, too, so others feel less alone. They're helping end the stigma and shame of alcoholism for nearly 13 years and for the first two years of this work, Dana was the president and CEO of the Arts Partnership in Fargo, North Dakota, an umbrella arts nonprofit organization dedicated to cultivating community through the arts. Additionally, she is a professional stage and commercial actor. She launched the original legendary tourism ads for the state of North Dakota. But for some reason, everyone seems to focus on the Josh Duhamel. How do you say his name? Duhamel. Duhamel wins instead. Dana is also a really good friend of mine and a prior client. So welcome. We're so happy to have you on here to talk about your spark.
2: I am so thrilled to be here to see you again, Jess Buchanan, to meet you, Jess Kidwell. I just really thank you for having me on. It's really exciting.
1: Yay. So since I am the third wheel in this... (laughs) conversation but a tricycle needs three good wheels just let's just it go with really, that that is true that is true triangles are important i would like you to maybe share a little bit more than the bio can tell us about how spark came to be a part of your life and and did you did you lose your spark dana
2: a great question um no i'll give you sort of the origin story and then i'll answer that question i guess so i was on a two-week solo writing retreat artist in residence retreat in the middle of north dakota so if you are a listener thinking boy north dakota's rural that is true i live in the most populated part of north dakota but then it gets rural very fast. I was in the rural list of rural North Dakota. In 14 days, I saw three people, a census worker, um, a farmer who stopped to ask me where in the world I was walking to all day, every day, and my husband who came to see me for one night. So I was on this writing retreat and I had gone with a purpose of reading the letters that my grandparents courted and fell in love with each other over between 1948 and 1950. Um, there are about 500 letters, and to everyone's knowledge, no one but the two of them have ever read them. So because I'm a writer, I took the letters with me, and I thought, maybe I'll do something really interesting. My They were quite a bit older when they met, so I've always sort of thought that what I'd really love to do is make a screenplay and then play my grandma. But I started to read those letters, and while it was incredibly fascinating to meet them as young lovers and to see how playful and sassy and sexy they were, I realized pretty quickly this was not a direction that I wanted to go. So I put the letters down and I just decided to get curious about what I was going to do with 12 and a half days all by myself. That was by far the most amount of time I'd ever spent alone. So I was out walking on day three and I had had this feeling the day before, I was very uncomfortable. Physically, emotionally, I, I felt like my skin was kind of being peeled off my body and I just, I just decided to sit with it and I didn't judge it. And I woke up the next morning and I felt so much better. And I realized that I had made my way through kind of a rebirth experience. And what I actually realized that we can talk about later is that same discomfort happened at about the exact same number of hours as my husband years earlier had moved into complete delirium tremors from alcohol withdrawal. And what I understood was I was sort of withdrawing from my day-to-day life at that point. So I'm out walking these dirt roads and I'm gesturing to the universe and I'm talking loudly and the birds are honking and the soybeans are growing and the corns on this side and I'm saying to the universe, this has been an unbelievable disruption. I I can't believe I'm experiencing this. I want to do this work for other people. I want to, like, I don't want it to just be for me. Somehow I have to figure out how to do this for other people. And as clear as day, the universe said to me, Dana, you're a personal systems disruptor. And I stopped and I looked around and I looked up at the universe and I said, I am? And the universe said, yes, and you're going to do this work with everyone. And I was about a quarter of a mile from the farmhouse where I was staying. And in that time, I really put together the core of what now almost three years later has become this experience course retreat, all these different iterations of this work. Really the only thing that has changed in any dramatic way since then is the name. Um, And that came about because of Jess Buchanan. She and I were working together last January in 2022 and We kind of together came to the realization that that phrase did not work. It really wasn't what I was doing. I really was helping people go back inside and find that inkling of what makes them them. And so that's when the name Discover Your Spark, Rediscover Your Spark, it kind of goes back and forth, came to be. And so that is where I'm at. So that's the origin story. The answer to did I lose my spark is I only ever wanted to be a movie star. I fully expected to win multiple Oscars. I have a theater degree and I happen to have a 27 year old. So uh, right before I graduated from college, I got pregnant found out about seven days later. And then he was born seven and a half months after that. And um, you can imagine that that really derailed my life. I, instead of moving to Los Angeles, I moved back home from the place I'd been doing theater for the summer. And I suddenly became a young single mom and spent an enormous amount of those years, absolutely devastated that I didn't get to be a movie star. And so I found ways to be a performer. I actually ended up having a really good, funny little acting career from here. But what this spark work has done is it has helped me shift the lens. So in many, many ways, this is a performative thing that I am doing. And it is utilizing all of the same skills and really feeds me in the same way that performing does. So I didn't lose my spark, I redefined my spark. And that is really where I am at right now because I have lived a super ordinary life. I mean, what is more ordinary than Fargo, North Dakota? I am in the most flyover part of the world. So it's been very ordinary, but it has absolutely been remarkable. And I think everybody has that possibility.
1: I have to interrupt because I have some very close personal ties in a dear friend and her family that are all from North Dakota. (laughs) And I have found in my experience that despite the perceived ordinariness, there is something about North Dakota that breeds extraordinary because of the remoteness because of the need to uh, connect and physically and geographically it's kind of hard. So I'm going to stick up for you and all of North (laughs) Dakota and I know that Carla will be listening to this at some point saying damn right. (laughs) So, Dana, you alluded to a little bit earlier when you talked about that transformative experience that you had seemed to mirror the amount of time that your Mm -hmm. husband experienced going through physical withdrawal from alcohol. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the offering that you have created is a very unique program that is geared towards supporting the partners of people who have addictions. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? You did. I find it fascinating because I personally am unaware of a lot of things out there geared specifically to the partners other than like an Al-Anon is the only thing that comes to mind. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience with your husband and how that then turned into helping others?
2: Sure. So I met Maz on the September 11th. He is Irish but grew up in England. He was postdocing at the university in a biology department where I was doing my master's in English, and a mutual friend connected us. So we met in 2001 and were together. My son was five and a half at that point. We were together until we got married in 2008, but did not live together. So he was an enormous part of our lives. The first night I met him, he said to me, I drink one whiskey a night. And I happened to have grown up in a household, which I now understand is very, very rare, where alcohol was just not a thing anywhere. Nobody drank, none of our friends drank. It just wasn't a thing. I was 13 years old the first time I ever saw a beer in the hands of someone I knew. So when Maz told me that he drank one whiskey a night, I remember very clearly thinking, That feels like a lot but i knew that i was naive about alcohol and i thought well he's irish you know so i made this sort of stereotype and let it go okay so we were together almost seven years then we got married he moved in and almost immediately i realized one whiskey was not really accurate some nights it was one but it was often more and um so it wasn't a problem initially aside from the fact that i just noticed it Well, somewhere between 2008 and I would say, well, certainly by 2017, it was an enormous problem. He was drinking, I now know he was drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels, um, Jim Beam, a a day. He was, um, I came back one morning, I had left and forgotten something. And so I came back about five minutes later and he was standing in the kitchen. It was about 8 a.m. and he was drinking a whiskey. Um, He was passed out all the time. He was never physically abusive, never even really verbally abusive, but he was useless. I used to sort of joke and say it was like I had a newborn. So we would sit down to watch a movie and he would be asleep before the credits were done. And so I did not understand what was happening because I thought an alcoholic crashed their car, got a DUI and lost their job. And he wasn't doing any of those things. He was a very successful professor, got consistently high reviews from his students, was tenured, all these things. And so I thought, well, I don't know what this is, but I, I just have to shake it out of him. And so I did everything I could do. I I stood between him and the television night after night for years crying, pleading, screaming, cajoling, persuading, I mean, all of the gerund verbs you can think of to get him to let this, put this down and be who he was when I had met him. He is easily one of the most interesting, intelligent, quick-witted people I've ever met. My fascination with him is kind of endless. But my reality was that I was just with this lump of a human being. And so I I wasn't getting anywhere. He would say to me, you're right. I should drink less, but that he learned very quickly how to lie to me, how to pacify me. Um, I would come downstairs in the morning and he would have hidden a whiskey in the couch. And I don't know how I always knew, but I always knew. And I would pull it out and there would be a full ice cube. So it's six 30 in the morning. And I would say to him, what is this? And he'd say, well, it's not mine. (laughs) Three people live in the house are, you know, 14 year old son, you and me. And then he would say to me, well, it's, for, it's okay. It's mine, but it's from last night. Well, nobody's ice stays frozen in any house for eight hours. So, you know, it was just this endless cycle of me trying to fix him and him getting worse and worse and worse. So, uh, January 31st, 2017, he texted me from work and said, I have a nosebleed that will not quit. I am coming home. I'm canceling all my afternoon classes. And he always had nosebleeds and they were always disgusting. And I had started calling him a semi hemophiliac because if you flicked his arm, he would bruise from his shoulder to his elbow. I mean, it was just crazy. So I was just done with him at this point and didn't even really respond. I came home for dinner. Our son was in college by this point. Came home for dinner. And he bled all through dinner and I just, it was just, ugh. So I went to bed in about three in the morning on February 1st, he woke me up and he said, you have to take me to the emergency room. Something is really wrong. So I watched him decline into this place of insanity. And then three years later, I was on this writing retreat and at about the same time, I had the same, similar, a similar experience. But I, I just understood it so differently from having watched him move from one reality through something that was very clearly a subconscious reality for him. I mean, he had no idea who I was. He tried to attack me in the hospital. Um, it was terrible. It was a really terrible experience, which is how he ended up in the coma. And then he came out of that and and there was a rebuilding to be done. And the same thing happened for me. So. That was all September of 2020 that I had this experience. His, his sobriety started February 1st, 2017. And what happened was um, we told almost no one because one of the hallmarks of addiction in almost every household is the incredible shame and the unbelievable isolation. So, you know, in the middle of winter in North Dakota, you don't always see a lot of people. You're not out and about. He was only gone six
1: weeks. Really very, very few people had any idea. Before we continue, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Lisa Seward of the Seward Group. Lisa's the team leader of Seward Group, a full spectrum concierge real estate team with TTR Sotheby's International Realty. Her team consists of six fantastic
0: and hyper-local specialized agents. A diamond-level top-producing team for Northern Virginia, they know how to hustle as their business is 99% based on client referrals. No other team, agent, or brokerage will spend more money, resources, or intelligent strategy for marketing your home for the most amount of money the market will bear. You can find the Sewer Group's listings locally, regionally, internationally, and globally, where you will be provided with listings containing architectural photography and video, 2D and 3D floor plans, as well as a unique url they
1: love to represent buyers as well and always have their clients highest and best interests at the core of everything they do the seward group treats clients like family and every single team member loves their job lisa believes that the best part of her job is helping her clients with major life transitions as they move on to the next chapter in the story of
0: their lives If you are looking to transition to your next chapter, please visit www.seward-group.com or contact Lisa Seward at 703-298-0562 or lseward at ttrsir.com for more information. Around 2019,
2: I started to get messages from people on Facebook because as soon as Maz got sober, our lives changed dramatically. I mean, everything that was wrong really shifted. And a lot of that was that I did shifting too. So it's not just that Maz got sober, but the sobriety is what triggered all of our uh, rebirth. And people started writing to me and there was sort of this like um, unhappy happiness that everything was so great. So people were writing to me and saying, What's going on at your house that you're in England three times a year? And, you know, there was there's a little bit of, I think, Midwestern thing is like, well, you got pregnant before you were married and you were a single mom. And how come everything's working out for you?
0: Wow. I mean, can we stop right there and unpack that for a minute? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Talk about being judged for, you know. Yeah, it was weird. It was a weird judgy thing. Just like learning how to not die and be happy. I feel <laughs> like, you know, do, are we supposed like, do we judge about that? I don't know. I guess.
1: Yeah, uh, it's... Apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think it's sort of fun and easy to judge other people. And, and in so many ways, my life really did go from Maz being largely absent. I had this very high profile job that he often wasn't at. He only really drank at home, so nobody really saw him drunk. Um, So nobody knew it was really bad going in, and then nobody really understood. Mm -hmm. Aside from the fact that he was physically transformed, nothing else appeared to have changed except that our lives were just suddenly incredible. The problem was that everybody was only seeing our best of real. Nobody Mm -hmm. knew what we had gone through to get to four trips to England a year. Mm -hmm. So I went out to the kitchen and I said to him, I have a question to ask you. And if you say no, I will never ask you again because it's really his story to tell. So I asked him if he would be willing to go public with it. And he asked for some time and he came back the next day and he said yes. So we decided that we would go public on his three-year soberversary, February 1st, 2020. And so we launched that nine-part 27, nine-week, 27-part series that Jess talked about, and my little website went from about 800 views a month to 25,000 views, and we were getting hundreds of messages from people we knew, people we didn't know, and what I did not know and was not prepared for was the number of people who, in essence, said, me too, Mm -hmm. had some lived experience with it, people we knew well who wrote and said, boy, that's happening at our house too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I was thunderstruck. So we went through that series, which was really, really hard. I had kept a journal that a nurse had given me while Maz was in the hospital. And I always say that that's probably the reason our marriage made it from my perspective, because I used that journal and I just laid out every Ounce of anger and fear and shame and all the negative. I mean, I, I purged that in that mm-hmm. journal the same way Maz purged the alcohol. So, my sections of the 27 part series are really journal excerpts, and then Maz's is, is looking back. So, it's this beautiful whole picture mm-hmm. of what happens in a household when someone is dying of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So that wrapped up in April of 2020. The world was, you know, shut down and crazy. And in July of that year, I said to him, I think we have more to talk about. And he agreed. And so we started at that point, five day a week, daily dose, 15 minutes, very focused, one topic a day, 830 to 845, live streamed, raw, unedited, Sometimes we would freeze, you know, for the first like 12 episodes, I held my little iPhone. So it's (laughs) like this, you know, Um, technology is not my uh, forte. So we got better over time. But those conversations were extraordinary. They they gave us the gift to learn things about each other and about ourselves that we never could have learned any other way because... Mm -hmm almost every day I would say to him, what are we gonna talk about in eight minutes? And we would have to come up with something. Sometimes we fought and sometimes I cried. And what I realized in all of that was that even with all the healing that had gone on in those previous three and a half years, there was a ton of stuff I had not dealt with. Yeah. so that was how that piece began. And I tried a little bit of Al-Anon, which really did not work for me. Mm -hmm. And so then this spark stuff came to be. And now we're doing discover your spark as a sober couple, couple together. Because one thing we had to figure out when he came home was what in the world do we do? Mm -hmm. I never drank as much as he did, but our entire existence was primarily focused on drinking Mm -hmm. to get him to go for a bike ride. I would have to say, well, let's bike to a restaurant and get a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And when that goes away, either by force or by choice, you really have to look at each other and say, how are we going to fill our nights? What what happens on a Saturday yeah. afternoon? So that's where this came from.
0: Oh, my gosh. There's so much good stuff to talk about. So, right? so much. much good stuff. I, I feel like I could, like, unfold a
1: scroll of questions. Question number one. Mm.
0: <laughs> you know, I want to just say, like, in a space of it just reminded me. When you were talking about having those conversations in the daily doses and Mm -hmm. how it was such a healing um, in the long run it was really hard but it was really healing i can identify with that because i think eric and i found that to be the case for us when we wrote our book together when we co-wrote impossible odds and people would ask us about that and you know when we set out to write that we had two purposes and it was so that our son would have an account mm-hmm. of what happened and so that we could say thank you to people that we knew we would never be able to to say thank you to mm-hmm. but what we found was he was telling his side of the story and i was telling mine and i um, working with a third person also helped us have conversations and explore areas that we never would have done on our own yeah and i it could have gone the other way where mm-hmm. you know much like you guys i think There could have been, well, it might not have had the happiest of endings, Mm -hmm. right? But for us, it was very cathartic and bonding and helped us navigate some potentially raw spaces Mm -hmm. um, in our situation and in our relationship. So I think that one of my core values is talking about things Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is why.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's nice to hear
0: another story where that actually does indeed work.
1: And a phrase that you used, Dana, that just like hit so true is you said it offhand that you guys got better as you went along. It Mm -hmm. got easier as it went along. And that was you were laughing about the technological (laughs) and maybe the production of the daily (laughs) dose. But I imagine... Jess, Eric, Dana, Maz, any type of healing that has to take place in a partnership has got to feel almost impossible, but then it gets easier as you go Mm -hmm. along.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's really easy to look at someone who becomes an alcoholic and place all the blame on them. Mm Mm-hmm. And so one of the really powerful pieces of learning that happened all along was what role did I play? Mm -hmm. I didn't hold him down and shove alcohol down his throat, but I absolutely was a co-conspirator in one of us falling apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think some of why it was so hard for me was it, it was easier to think he was just the kind of the broken one. And I was the one who'd held it all together and kept everything going. And, and I was the virtuous one and he was the screwed up one. And when I realized I was as screwed up in different ways as he was, and I'd contributed as much and I had, I had done as much damage as he had done. That's really hard to come to terms with. And I did not have four and a half weeks of inpatient rehab where it's hours a day of individualized and group therapy sessions where you're working through this and you're realizing that you're not alone and you're, you're gradually finding your self-worth again. I didn't have that. So daily dose for me really was incredibly therapeutic. And I know it was for Maz too, but he, he needed it less than I did. And I had no idea that I needed it. That was what was so incredible.
1: I imagine the word resentment is a familiar feeling or term when you are the partner of someone with an addiction. Because like you just delineated, you held everything together. Mm -hmm. You weren't the one pouring the whiskey down his throat. And in order for the healing to occur, a partner has to be willing to put that resentment down and take their own accountability Mm -hmm. for the role that they played in this destruction Mm -hmm. of one person. How do you encourage or coach partners who really, really, really Think that's bullshit. (laughs) Um,
2: hmm, I think that some of it is that it's sort of like the stages of grief. Because certainly if you'd come to me in February twenty February twenty seventeen sitting next to him in a medically induced coma and said, you know, Dana, some of this is your fault. I would have committed physical violence against you uh, because I just was at such a rock bottom place, Mm -hmm. but I was really gifted with an extraordinary moment. Um, Part of Maz getting to leave inpatient and move to outpatient rehab was that we had to go to four mandated marriage therapy sessions and we had never gone to therapy. Our insurance doesn't cover it. And so we had never gone, but we walked into the first session and Things were okay at this point. I mean, there was a lot to unpack still, but we were we were definitely finding the beginnings of our way back to something. And so we sit down in front of this therapist, and he draws a triangle on the whiteboard, and he says, there are three legs to many marriages. You have spouse one, spouse two, and then whatever one of those spouses is focusing on, And that focus is okay as long as it doesn't um, have more emphasis than the one between the two of you. So he said, so Dana, Maz, Maz, what's your third leg of this stool? And Maz said, it's drinking. And I remember looking to my right and thinking, you're damn right it is. And then he turned to me and he said, Dana, what's yours? And I thought, what are you even talking about? And then I immediately realized, the third leg of my stool had been my son Mm. and the, the piece that I will never know, and it doesn't really matter, but it, it sort of matters to me is did Matt start to drink because I focused so singularly on Quinn that he never really felt like he was an equal player in our relationship? Or did I focus singularly on Quinn because Maz started to drink? It doesn't. It's irrelevant. It's a chicken mm-hmm. and egg question. But the more Maz drank, the more I moved towards Quinn. And the more I moved towards Quinn, the more Maz drank. Mm-hmm. And so the balance was just never going to be right. And the second I said that out loud, I realized I could never again look at him as the lesser or the broken or the mess Mm -hmm. we were in it together Mm -hmm. so i try to encourage people to find their place and maybe maybe for some people it isn't that obvious and it's very possible that for some people it's not at all an equal level of Mm -hmm. third third corner focus Um, But it was for us. And I think for a lot of people it is. And that can be really powerful and humbling when you realize that you were an active player in this. It helps you necessarily have to let go of some of that resentment because you have to take some ownership for yourself.
0: Wow. That's just so powerful because before I was going to ask you, like, how did you just not walk out on him in the hospital room? But I mean, that's just so very illuminating. And I I think in AA, they call it co-signing someone's bullshit or something. Mm, Something like that. Yeah. Being a co-signer. I I have a couple of authors that have sobriety stories. And so I, I know it from that perspective of hearing their side of things and, Yeah. Then what happens when that third leg changes from being alcohol to sobriety?
2: Mm, That's a great question. And I I am always really quick to say that um, there is no template for Mm -hmm. what sobriety looks like. My experience is singular to me, just like there's no template for what parenting looks like or a Mm -hmm. good marriage or whatever. Our experience has been so blessed in so many ways. And I don't love to use that word because I feel like it gets thrown around like I'm blessed because I got a lot of Instagram followers and all that. Yes. Hashtag blessed. So so I I don't mean it casually. I really mean it in the truest sense of the word. Mm -hmm. When I went in to see Maz's group in rehab, I got called in and he didn't know I was going to be there. And it was really hard. And there were, I think, eight people in that group. And the other seven were all back for at least their third time in rehab. Some of them were back for time seven, time eight, times oh, nine. God. And it was people who ranged in age from 20 to 72. Mm. I just remember feeling so hopeless that this was just now my life. This was just this cycle of gear up and get excited about sobriety only to have it fall off and get... And that has not been our experience. So he Mm -hmm. is six years and multiple months sober. That has not been our experience yet. I'm not saying it never could be, but it has not happened. Um, So I know that many, many people cannot make that claim and that the wear and tear of Mm -hmm. back and forth and up and down has got to be really, really terrible. So all I can say is that once that third leg became around about sobriety, then it became about anything and everything. Because when you are no longer fixated on, where am I gonna get my next drink? How am I gonna hide this drink? How am I gonna lie about how much I've had to drink? How am I gonna make sure nobody knows how much money I'm spending? All the lies, the incredible number of lies that go into that. When that is no longer a piece of your reality, I'm not saying there aren't other problems you also have to work through. But when honesty is your new baseline, suddenly everything from my experience can be viewed through that lens and dealt with through that lens. So in the years where Maz was really drinking, I think the way that I uh, lashed out was like I would go to this great little boutique downtown And I would buy $800 worth of dresses, which, I mean, I needed sort of for my job, but nobody really needs $800 worth of dresses on a regular basis. Um, And it was like the only thing I felt like I could control. Well, as soon as he got sober, I just had zero interest in that. None. I think I've spent about $9 on clothes in the six years he's been sober. I could care less. (laughs) Uh, COVID was a super bonus in that's that impressive. way for me. <laughs> it's been a little more than nine. But I, really, um, I, I felt more in control of myself because I understood the environment I was now living in because mm. we could have conversations where I knew he was being honest with me. When someone says to you, that's not my whiskey, and you're the only two people in the house, How do you prove that's their whiskey? I mean, I guess I could have gotten like DNA testing and all, but how do you prove that? So you start to feel crazy. Mm -hmm. And I no longer felt crazy, which just uh, equalized everything. And Mm -hmm. that I think is one of the great gifts is that everything just calms down. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: At least it did for us.
1: Mm. I imagine it takes a lot of time to rebuild that trust though. It does. It does.
2: It does. One of the surprises to doing this work three years later was if you had asked me in January of 2020, where are you and Mazat?" I would have said, oh, my gosh, we've worked through everything. It's amazing. And it was amazing. My marriage has been amazing since the day he came home. But it was amazing because I hadn't done much digging into myself above and beyond that journal writing that I had done. Well, there's a lot more emotion to living with an addict than just shame, isolation and rage. And I hadn't dealt with any of the other sort of lesser hard emotions. And I just was not prepared for them. I mean, you you will see moments in Daily Dose if you go back and watch them where we start fine, we're laughing, it's light and easy, and all of a sudden he says something. I'll give you an example. We had a guest on, it was probably November of 2020. So I don't know, 75 episodes in maybe. And she made a reference to, she didn't stop drinking because she didn't think she could get back what she had. So she just sort of thought she would drink herself to death. And Maz said on camera to her, I know exactly what you mean. I knew I was drinking too much. I knew it was going to kill me, but I believed that I had had such an incredible life that I willingly threw away to alcohol that I didn't deserve to get sober and fix it and have it back. Uh, That's maybe the most shocking thing he said from my perspective, because A, it's so heartbreaking. Everybody deserves to find redemption. I don't care what you've done, everybody deserves personal and familial and community redemption. And it utterly discounts the damage that you're doing to everyone around you. Quinn was, was damaged by this, I was damaged by this, his family, my family, our friendships. I mean, the damage, the ripple effect of
1: the damage is so extraordinary. Well, it's the selfish, right? Yeah, it's it's the. This isn't just about you, right? You drinking your. I'm great. I'm so glad you made that decision, <laughs> and that's heartbreaking. However, you do not live in a vacuum, right? And thank you very much. You don't get to unilaterally make that decision, right? Right, in our
2: basement. Um. So it was it was heartbreaking, and it was hard to hear because. It was another reminder that I really thought I was keeping everything together somehow and stupidly, but thought I was. And to finally hear what he was thinking at the same time that I felt like I was running, if I were running a marathon, I was being asked to sprint the entire thing. That's how I felt every minute of every day of probably the last six years of those years before he got sober. And he basically thought, I'm just going to drink myself to death because I don't deserve anything more. That was shocking to have those two lived experiences be happening simultaneously.
0: Once again, talking about it for the win, right? Like, can you imagine if you were still, I mean, you wouldn't be where you are doing what you're doing if you hadn't had those coinciding realizations. Yeah, absolutely. Which then I think is a great pivot into telling us a little bit more about this work. I've
2: had some really extraordinary experiences very recently that have caused me again to shift the lens. So I think I said early on that I always expected to be a movie star. I grew up in a household where not everything was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing that was pretty perfect was for the most part, I got to dream audaciously and nobody ever said to me, you can't do that. So when I told people when I was really little that I was going to be Barbara Walters, And then I did started doing theater when I was six and I shifted it to I'm going to be an actor. And then I shifted it to I'm going to be a movie star. In my immediate circle, nobody ever questioned me. I have no idea what they thought privately, but I got to go get a theater degree. I got to go do all these things. And no one said I couldn't. So I referenced earlier that sometimes I call it rediscover and sometimes I call it discover. And that is from this new understanding. I was getting my nails done. The woman who does my nails is a good friend of mine. And she said to me in January, do you want to know why I've never taken your course? And I said, sure. And she said, how can I rediscover something I never had in the first place? Which really broke my heart. Because even though I'm not a movie star, and I didn't get to go be a movie star, I never questioned that I'm a movie star. My worth at the lowest, lowest, lowest points of my life, unexpectedly pregnant, living in Southern Utah, unmarried and not Mormon, doing theater, having a husband tied to a bed because he tried to attack me in a medically induced coma, never questioned my worth, always knew I was a movie star to whatever extent that was. So I had to really think, oh, I'm not helping people rediscover. I might be helping people discover that they have a spark. And here's what I want your audience to believe. If you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I don't have one. Are you breathing? You have a spark. Your spark might not be to be a movie star. That's another thing I've learned recently. Some people feel like what I'm saying to them is you have to have huge audacious dreams or it's not valuable one woman did this work and what she discovered is that she wants to write better travel journals because she's in her 70s and when she knows that she's physically unable to stop traveling she wants her travel journals to be the way she remembers and experiences the world if that's not an incredible spark I don't know what is
1: I mean that spark just made me well up Uh, me too
2: Me too. That's pretty sparky. It is. It's not about, well, if you don't want to be a professional athlete or a movie star or populate Mars, this isn't work for you. This is work for human beings because we all have something that matters to us. And mostly we don't explore it. I just last night had someone say to me, Dana, I can't do this work because I'm not ready to go there yet. And I said, well, where do you think there is? And she said, inside. I'm afraid to go inside. Okay, that's okay. It is scary. There's a lot of vulnerability to stopping and saying, is this where I wanna be in my life? But the work doesn't ask you to um, show up and like reveal your most gooeyest, hardest, softest, tenderest parts I'm never going to say to someone, let's close our eyes and go back to the worst moment of your life. I just want to take you through an acting exercise where you relive that. If you don't cry, you're not a good actor. That is not what this work is about. <laughs> <laughs> those exercises are miserable. Uh, I will never do those with anybody. Oh, this, this work is about figuring out who am I and mm-hmm. what do I have to offer myself and what does the world need me to offer? Because it's waiting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the and the clock is ticking. So let's do it now. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and it sounds like you've had several iterations of spark discovery. You know, I have. Like, I think that that's also very true as we evolve. I don't want to get lost in metaphors, but, you know, like there is more than one spark. Yes. And- yeah,
2: I, I didn't. I did not say to myself or the world, well, it's too late. I can't be a movie star. I just have to sadly put that dream down and search around for something else. This is that same spark, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is why the work is about discovering who you are. What are the things that you show up and do or are interested in and how can you apply them to your life? It's not about quitting your day job, even if you don't love your day job. Maybe it's about picking up something on the side as simple as knitting. Maybe it's the 90-minute every four-week massage that mm-hmm. makes your day-to-day life okay. I, there's a million ways to do this work. I think people get caught up in the fact that I have this big audacious personality. And I, call, I literally tell people I'm building a spark empire Like, how much more (laughs) audacious can you get than that? That makes movie star look like something anybody can go to. That's just where my spark is. And I'm not going to apologize for it. And I don't care if you laugh at me because it's fine. It is ridiculous. And it's going to happen. So it's fine.
0: And this is why I love Dana. I
1: mean, for so many reasons.
0: It's It's very attractive.
1: I also imagine that there are people who... Are in a situation like you were in or that Maz was in where I can't, I'm, I'm treading water. How can I Mm -hmm. discover or rediscover my spark? And, and that whole concept of, I have to wait until all of the, all of the things are taken care of before I can focus on myself. And the beauty is that, oh, I can help you with that <laughs> I, I can I can help you get to one last thing off of off of the worry plate or the to do mm. plate.
2: what I would say to someone who says that, which I think is really legitimate, it is all consuming, and if there's any kind of abuse in the environment or if your person loses their job or i mean we we were spared a lot of stress that other families are not spared but in the midst of all of that, you can still have something that is just for you. Maybe mm-hmm. it's maybe it's literally container gardening. Mm-hmm.
0: That,
2: that's a beautiful spark. I can't tell you the number of times when things were bad in the basement that I would go upstairs and outside and just sit in my container section of my backyard and find solace there. There is always space for some little glimmer of joy, of belonging to who you are, of dreaming. There is always space for that. And it does not need to come at the expense of the very real reality of your life.
0: Hmm. I love that.
1: Well, Dana, how, how do we find out more? So
2: um, I have a free gift for audience members to download and get started. If you go to danadelval.com backslash discover, it's the very beginning of what happens at all of the weekend retreats or the six week courses or the corporate experiences. And it is your first opportunity to just let your mind wonder, huh? I wonder what if about a whole bunch of different areas. And sometimes you might come up with something that surprises you. And sometimes things you thought would matter won't matter. And it's just a very easy, safe, joyful free write. So com backslash discover. That gets your email to me. You, you'll start to get my Sunday newsletter. Um, it's
0: very good. I read it every Sunday.
2: <gasps> Thanks, Jess.
0: So our theme for whatever season we're in now, for four, thank you. I don't, I can't count, is abundance. And we have ended every episode in this season asking our guests to ponder that word and, and think about what, what does abundance mean to you?
2: Abundance to me means living honestly,
0: mm.
2: being radically transparent and recognizing your blessings.
1: Mm. I love that. And not hashtag blessings, like the real (laughs) opportunities for gratitude. Yeah. Dana, thank you so much. It has been a real pleasure for me, who started out as a third wheel, but now I believe I'm a third member of (laughs) this sparkly stool. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I'm just very grateful to you. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank the two of you so, so much. I just... Wow, I agree. You are part of this group and I now can say I adore both of you.
0: Yes. We Should Talk About That is created and hosted by Jess Buchanan and Jessica Kidwell. Our production is done by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios. The theme song, Be Where You Are, is courtesy of Astrobia. To learn more about this or
1: any of our episodes, visit our website at www.westatpod.com and follow us on our social media accounts. We are at WeStatPod on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This community grows by spreading the word. So follow us and invite others to listen.
0: And if you like an episode, consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We are so glad you are here. Be